LMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding. The street is full of corruption. It is baked in to every aspect of our society. 1900s, Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This is written over 100 years ago. All right, everybody, it is Steve, the Rogue Scholar. It's Friday, and we're going to talk about false choices. I've been stumbling across, I mean, this is not something, don't let me act like I just stumbled across this, but forever, people have made these false choices, and it's it's not just their fault. It really comes down to the presentation of options from positions of authority, places like the media, our politicians, schools. Uh, economist experts in the field that present this very, very narrow realm of possibilities, and we take it as gospel. And because we have not broken free, honestly, we have not been able to make enough headway <clears throat> with um with the left, who has very, very poor, extraordinarily poor understanding of monetary operations and how money works in general. Um. Because they don't understand, they fall for just about anything. And you look out there at people who wonder how we can send this much money to Ukraine, but not have this much money to, you know, take care of people. And so naturally, we we spent all that money there and wasted it when it could have been spent here. And I'm not suggesting this is not about Ukraine. I want to be crystal clear. There is no financial constraint that says we can't do both okay there is no financial constraint keyword here financial constraint that says we can't be deep in war bombing the shit out of the world and still provide people health care at home there's literally nothing financial about that that says we can't do that we can absolutely do it it's a false choice to believe that we can't have great schools and simultaneously be warmongering pieces of shit, okay? There is no um, real way of quantifying or saying anything like, uh, you know, we can't provide free college to all. Um, if, we, if we gave people health care, we couldn't give them free college. Why not? Why not? There's no financial reason that says we can't. And so... These, these narrow choices that were given, we end up fighting over the narrow choices being given. I think you've probably seen me do this thing here where I say, these are the only choices that we have, these things that I'm talking about right here in front of you. However, there's this full 360 degree view of many, many other options that are not within the accepted Washington consensus of the Overton window, meaning the realm of possibility that is politically possible at any given time. But we sit there, and I, and I literally, it pains me because if our movement, whatever is left of it in tatters, actually understood that these are false choices. It's not we either do this or we do that. Where's the money coming from? We're screwed. But, it, but it's so many more things, that, even many of things that don't have money. Like, it's perfectly reasonable to say that the United States should not be engaged in NATO, should not be engaged in uh, funding Ukraine and giving them weapons and stuff like that, and simultaneously say 
that Vladimir Putin shouldn't have done X, Y, Z. It's a completely rational, true statement that two things can be true at the same time. It can also be equally true that you and I could be fighting and arguing about something, and I am incredibly wrong, okay? But that does not, by extension, mean that you're right. In other words, there's more than one option. It could be that you're wrong, I'm wrong, and the truth lies somewhere over here. All these things are true statements. And, you know, I think about all the the handcuffs that we put ourselves in preventing us from being able to think through serious problems that impact us. And, you know, it starts with, let's look at the train derailment in Palestine, Ohio. There's literally nothing whatsoever preventing the federal government from making a decision to do the Railway Improvement Act of whatever year that would literally put thousands upon thousands of workers out there in the field, inspecting, replacing, fixing, improving our infrastructure. There's nothing preventing that. And there's also nothing preventing the railways from actually upgrading their own gear and ensuring that their brakes are up to spec, better than what the spec is. There's no reason they can't improve beyond the spec. There's no reason that they can't uh, police that internally better. There's no reason they can't do all the above, okay? But these false choices mean that when you're trying to have a discussion with people and all they'll accept are these very narrow two choices that were given by the media and you're trying to expand that to something, you look like a fucking nut to them. You look like you're absolutely insane to them, okay? Now, there is a podcast out there. It's, it's actually, um, I think it was a podcast that was uploaded to YouTube a, a few years back. Uh, I did put the link in the narrative. I'm not going to play it here, but I want you all to go out and listen to it. It is symptomatic redness, and it's neoliberalism with Philip Morosky, who is a professor at Notre Dame University. And one of the most important things in that, and it's very easy to understand, it's a historical lesson. There's not any, like, formulas. You don't have to be a whiz-bang at math or know anything extra. He really explains it very well to you. There are references to people you most likely don't know, uh, but that's okay. That's how we learn, right? But in this discussion on neoliberalism, Philip Morosky talks about how neoliberalism does this thing, this really, really powerful thing where they take and they give you this really awful option, this option that there's absolutely no way in hell you would go through willingly, okay? And then they give you another option, and that other option is just as bad as this one, but it sounds a little bit better, better bedside manners, whatever. And so they're giving you these two options, okay? And then there's the do-nothing option, but they ratchet it up so you believe that there is this whole, you know, big push to do the center thing. So they've triangulated to create this, almost like herding of cats and dogs, right? And manufacturing you into a funnel and pushing you into this one choice. And this is how you ended up with Joe Biden. And this is how you end up with a lot of things. But Philip Morosky breaks it down at a much, much more um, granular level. And I really cannot 
beg you enough to listen to it. In fact, I think I still have it in my copy. I'm going to put it into the chat. Yep, I did. So there you go. I just put the Philip Morosky link directly into uh, the chat. And what I want you guys to think about is this. If you go out and you'll see your friends, your friends will go out there and say, man, if we didn't spend so much on the military, we could provide free college for everyone. Let's, let's break that down for a minute. What about giving so much money to the military makes it so that we don't have so much money we can give to literally provide free college? I'll wait. There's nothing. But if you tell me that all the people that are fighting in the military are actually the school teachers and stuff that would be giving you the classes, and therefore there's not enough real resources to go between the war machine and giving everyone free college, and you could show me that, I'd say, now that's a, that's a valid reason why we can't do it. But I want you to also think about what if I gave everyone today health care? literally free healthcare, gave every single person in the United States free healthcare. What do you think would be the problem with that? Do you think the system would go bankrupt? Do you think there would not be enough money to make every single payment? You need to know where the money comes from. The money comes from keystrokes. The money comes from spending authorized by Congress. It's a constitutional deal, Article 1, Section 8 of your United States Constitution gives power of the purse to Congress. So under what rationale would that be a problem? It wouldn't. So what would be a problem if I just gave every single person free health care, period, across the board, everyone that has any problem, go, go to the doctor, you'll not see a bill. There, boom, what do you have? What is the issue? It's real resources right? We don't have enough doctors. We don't have enough nurses. We don't have enough phlebotomists. We don't have enough anesthesiologists, anesthetists or whatever. We don't have enough of the key beds. We don't have enough key uh, radiation treatments. We don't have enough x-ray machines. We don't have enough whatever. We don't have enough uh, beds. On and on and on. So if you were to prep for free health care for all, what might you focus on, right? If, if I were a politician, I would ensure that we had enough people trained to be doctors, nurses, phlebotomists, whatever. And I would begin prepping by incentivizing those key career moves. I would be incentivizing them to get them filled up, to have enough real resources to serve everyone. So everyone has what they need. And I would look at the percentages of how many people have cancer and how many people have, you know, whatever. And I would go through and I would ensure that we had enough people trained, enough people trained so that we could provide those services. Unfortunately, without having that, that stuff would be inflationary. You would have long waits. You would have to ration care because you don't have the real resources. It's not a financial thing in the least, okay? 
It's a matter of do we have. So right now, I tried, you know, I guess it was a couple months ago. I still haven't gotten it taken care of for a number of financial reasons. But I went to a, a one of those clinics to have a tooth extracted. And I can't handle having my teeth done without being knocked out. My teeth are that bad. And so they said, here, we'll give you some Novocaine. And when they couldn't get me numb, they said they were going to send me to a specialist who uh, focused on oral surgery. When I tried to get seen, it was three months out in many cases for an emergency appointment. Now, this was not even to get the work done. This was just to have the initial consultation. So I'm thinking to myself, three months to get into a dentist for a medical emergency. Wow, what would happen if everybody had that same problem at the same time with the available trained personnel that we have today? Under the current system, the way we have everything balkanized by you can go to this group and you can go to that group and you can only go to this group and you can only go to that group. There's a lot of wasted resources out there because they've been split up and balkanized because of insurance and other rules and regs that they've created. The fact of the matter is, is that there is not enough, whatever the case, there's not enough of the real resources. So these financial decisions that we have to make for ourselves, those are real things that we have to fight through because we don't have the ability to create money out of thin air. Well, we do, but nobody would take it. Okay. So when I look at how we would make that decision, I would need to assess the real resource. Well, anyway, point is people jump automatically to either you're for healthcare or you're against healthcare. Well, that may be true in the end, but the reality is, is that if you haven't prepped, if you haven't prepared the runway to ensure all the real resources are available, okay, then you are in deep shit. You're in deep trouble. Okay, because if you were to pass that bill and suddenly just open up the gates and everybody comes rushing in, there is no way of managing that load. There just isn't. Like, it doesn't take much to think about this. If you were a uh, working in a food court at a mall and it was like 10 a.m. on a Sunday, not to put too fine a point on it, let's say you're a pizza shop and you know at noon there's going to be a huge inflow for a lunch rush. And so you've got to have enough pizzas there prepped and ready for slices to meet that rush when it comes through the door. Well, that meant that the night before, whoever the manager is needed to prep enough dough to get ahead of that lunch rush. That, that They had to be ready for the lunch rush. And that means they had to have enough cheese grated. They had to have enough sauce uh, made and prepared. They had to have the steam line ready. They had to have all this stuff ready. And how would they base whether they were ready? Because this stuff will go bad. If you don't use it, that food will go bad. So you don't want to waste food. It's not the money you're worried about wasting. You don't want to waste a real resource, right? So how would you do it? You would need to have some sort of historical trends. You would have to know what to expect. And you could look back several Sundays in a row, let's say, and say, ah, here is the um, 
here is what we did last month. We did we did 5,000 uh, slices on Sunday this day. We did 6,000 slices the other day, and we did 2,000 slices the other day. But that was a Monday, and that was a holiday. Or what? Anyway, so you find out what that number is, and let's say you come up with 6,500 slices that you want to have prepped and ready to go for the day, whatever, enough to make that, right? I mean, this is a very real deal managing the real resources. But it is not for a federal government anyway. It is not about the financial ability to pay. So we're asking the wrong questions. We're presented with these false choices. And in the end, because we're presented with those false choices, we end up narrowing the debate for what we're demanding based on those false choices. We can't afford to have enough to do this. That's not true. So when we were talking a while back about rolling out Medicare for all, do we even have enough doctors right now to cover every single person to go for whatever they need? It's, it, it's, you got to figure how long does it take to bake a doctor? You know, if I, if I get all the ingredients and I put it on the prep table and I'm pouring all this stuff and how do I, what do I have to do to create a doctor? You know, does it take eight years of, you know, school? You got your basic school, you've got, you know, your, uh, you know, graduate studies, then you have your doctoral program, then you have your internship, et cetera. Was that 12 years to create a doctor? So you better have enough doctors in the pipeline to be able to prepare for that, okay? Otherwise, you're going to end up with a horrible resource constraint. And when you go to roll it out, people that didn't want the program to work that way will have all the ammunition they need to say, see, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You didn't have enough real resources. This brings me to like a state level thing. How in the world would a state be able to prepare financially the resources they need to be able to ensure they have enough doctors, they have enough nurses, they have enough phlebotomists, they have enough whatever, dentists, I don't care, whatever. How would they ensure that? They have no real way of doing that. And that's a big problem, right? It's a big problem. Anyway. I see a $10 super chat here. Let's go ahead and drop to this real quickly. Uh, this is from Humorous. No one asks how we're going to pay for war, but everyone asks how we're going to pay for a person who asks for clean drink of water or a home or food. Exactly. Right? These are the, the false choices that we're always left with. We're always left with that. Well, how come we can't afford to give kids free lunches at school? How come we can't afford to provide every single person a house? You know, it's, it's funny. I'm going to do a show later today with uh, political misfits. And they're going to ask me questions about why is there this inflation and why is, why are we having issues with, you know, being able to bring inflation down. And it's like, if all I do is look at the monetary side of things and raise interest rates and do stuff like that, it, it's not, it's going to be a very, very weak, uh, response to inflation because ultimately as long as you and I need whatever is being sold no matter how high that price is we'll sacrifice other things to get that price we'll sacrifice whatever we need to get that thing we need okay and so really what you're doing is you're in you're by raising interest rates you're actually increasing inflation okay you're actually increasing it it only starts impacting inflation when it starts really hitting people in the pocketbook enough 
that they stop making that purchase. Okay. But ultimately, in the end, we're not talking about the other things we could do. Why can't the federal government put a price cap on? Why can't the federal government say, if you are found to raise prices above a certain level and you cannot justify an increase in costs that created that, if you can't justify that price increase, we are going to fine you a fee far more significant for price gouging than if you were just simply to go ahead and take a haircut for the people while we have this momentary ebb in the economy or what. They don't look at possibilities of price controls. They don't look at regulation. They don't look at ways of preventing the business class from predating upon we the people. Okay. But this is a whole big wide open spectrum of possibilities that could be done. But alas, let's go ahead and discipline the, the purchasers. Let's make their lives a living hell indiscriminately. Let's just raise interest rates so the rich get more money while the poor struggle. Okay. And it's in this vein that we see so many of the false choices presented to us. You better, you know, lay off 10 million people because otherwise we have runaway inflation. That's a false choice. We can have full employment. The difference is you've got different tools. Why don't they use those other tools that target business practices? Why do they only target tools that focuses on you and I surviving? Think about that for a minute. But you have been conditioned to believe. You have been conditioned to believe that the only options there are are the one or two options they presented you with. Layoffs and interest rate hikes over here. I am always baffled that we don't crack the seal on the blinders. It's like we got racing blinders on. We can't see anything to the left or to the right. We're just trapped, you know, in this thing, trapped in this myopic view, this view that neoliberalism has painted for you to give you these false choices, these false, um, it's this false Venn diagram, okay? Reality. The whole, we got so many more choices. There are rules. There are things that we must know. Like when I look and see the left doesn't understand that money's not an option. And when I look at the left and they, they say, well, you're, if you're spending, you're printing money. And if you're printing money, it's inflationary. They don't even know how to say, they don't know anything about it, but damn it, that's the must be, that's the narrow choice. That's the only way it is. If we spend on the people, Fuck, it's inflationary. That's it. Immediately. Immediately state that, right? And so every time we go out there to fight these wars, our entire group of citizens, I'm not even called leftist citizens, people, regular people, poorest, richest, doesn't matter, people, we have been boiled into this tiny little narrow world of false choices this tiny little narrow world of false choices where we believe that we must allow the government absolute impunity to spy on us, to track our whereabouts, to have tracers and to all in the name of protection. And on the other hand, there's the people that say, I don't want any of that stuff, period, come hell or high water. We don't need that. 
get out of here. Well, there's a balance. There's somewhere in there. I don't know what the false choice is in that case. You know, do you have ways of that uh, spying on people that's ethical? I don't think so, but maybe there is. Maybe there's something out there that says there's a way. I don't know, but I'm not prepared to say never, always, whatever. I'm prepared to say that in the grand scheme of things, it's always presented as zeros and ones, black and white, either or, okay? And we never get past, we never get past those either or statements. And then we get caught up in little minor details, little minor details that are really irrelevant to the big thing, but because we aren't fully aware of what the realm of possibility is, we allow them to narrow us down this tiny little, tiny little nothing burger, a debate about nothing to disrupt and derail every bit of progress we could possibly have. You know, I, I think to myself, you know, is, is it reform or revolution, right? It's an either or kind of thing. And at some level, there is some truth to that. It is kind of either or, but Every revolution isn't defined as grabbing your, your, uh, your rifle and, and going to hunt people down and, and win the civil war. That, you know, that's not always the way revolution looks. Sometimes revolution is a mental one. Sometimes it's an educational one. Sometimes it's a paradigm shift. Okay. Sometimes a revolution is simply ending something that you thought was necessary, you find out is not necessary, and it changes everything forever. Okay. So, I, you know, I think about the allegory of the cave and, you know, years ago I was going to write a book with, uh, another MMT -er, and we were going to be talking about MMT as genuine hope. And in the, you know, those old books, you flip the pages and you see the cartoon character moving and stuff. We're going to have somebody climbing up a ladder through the pages up to the end. And at the end, they were going to lift the lid off and see the world was this great place but the whole way through at the bottom was somebody saying, no, don't go up there. Don't look up there. If you look up there, everything's going to be bad. Don't go up there. So there's always somebody there trying to keep you down, keep you in this narrow space, okay? And it really is up to us to kind of know, um, to kind of know what, in fact, is the realm of possibility, what we can do, what we can't do. And, and to be able to explore and to be able to think and to be able to be creative and, and to not allow them to box us into this narrow choice of false, uh, false choices. So let's here, let's, let's take a look at this. I saw some reference to this. Let's see. It says less regulation of what a person can do with their own body, far more regulation on corporations, wall street and the railroad industry. Exactly. Great comment. Um, but, you know, I think to myself, we are not making the kind of progress in terms of waking people up that I would like to. And you see no popular energy toward any of the things that really are feasible. None at all. I see more energy being poured into solutions that are fundamentally not possible fundamentally impossible but because the people leading them have large platforms large voices 
um, and are recalcitrant, unwilling to listen to any pushback, they have huge swaths of people fighting for things like state-by-state health care. Okay? So it's, it's a shame. It's not because you don't want them to have health care. See, there's one of those false equivalences, right? Want every single person in the country to have health care. But when you're not a currency issuer, and you've already seen what happens when the states and the local uh, treasuries go broke, you know, they don't have the real resources to fix that. Pensions go belly up. Teachers are laid off. Schools are not improved, okay? Roadways go unfixed. You know, these are all because local and state governments are literally cash-strapped. They're tax receipt-strapped. And for whatever reason, making that case with people, understanding that there are multiple layers of this concentric economies, right? kind of like one of those Russian dolls that you lift the lid off and there's another one inside, lift the lid off, there's another one inside and so on. In this particular case, you've got the macro economy where the federal government is putting money into the economy on, you know, contracts and bills and uh, spending on employees and benefits and things like that. And then on the other hand, you've got banks, private banks, bringing money in why? Why are they putting money into the economy? Why are private banks putting money into the economy? Private banks are putting money into the economy because the federal government hasn't done its job or it has done its job for capital. Instead, it's saying, hey, we would rather you all go borrow money to keep the economy afloat. We're going to go ahead and reduce the deficit. We're going to go ahead and pay down the debt. We're going to go ahead and shrink the money supply. We're going to go ahead and privilege the wealthy while underprivileging the rest of you, okay? And this is standard fare. This is exactly what happens all the time, unfortunately, okay? Unfortunately, it happens that way all the time. But if you don't know where money comes from, if you're not aware that the federal government itself is the creator of the currency, you're likely to be stuck in this bind. Because see, currency is law. The Federal Reserve doesn't write laws. The Federal Reserve is an agent of Congress. The Federal Reserve reacts and responds to input from Congress, its parent, its creator. Money is a creature of law. The US dollar is a patented law, okay? The United States government owns the patent on the US dollar, its unit of account. So the birth of any money is Article 1, Section 8, which is your U.S. Constitution, which does give that power by law, law, legal authority, law, okay, to Congress. So you see money. How many different ways do you see a dollar, right? You don't ever see a dollar. Dollar's impossible to see. You can't see an inch. You can't see a pound. You might be able to see my fat belly, but you have no idea how many pounds. It's probably 500, right? Close. Regardless, the point I'm making here is this. Money comes in many flavors. It can be in a bill, a paper bill. It can be in a coin. It can be in an electronic register. It could be a uh, digit in a, an account. Okay? It can be in a bond. It's a different type of money. Money-ness. Okay? 
But the point I'm making is, is it transitions to many different ways. It can move to many different debt instruments, okay? But money itself, the law itself, the law was created when Congress signed the bill, okay? It authorized the creation of XYZ in its Article One, Section 8 of the United States Constitution. Article One, Section 10, another important one, folks, tells you that states cannot create their own currency like this. States cannot create U.S. dollars like that, okay? These are creatures of law. This is the way the system operates. So as a result of Article 1, Section 8 that gives the power of the uh, purse to Congress and Article 1, Section 10, which forbids the states, you now have the legal framework for understanding the rules that you're allowed to operate within, okay? So if I tell you, hey, we can't do this at the state level because X, Y, Z, or maybe that somewhere like California might be able to, New York might be able to, Washington State might be able to, Texas might be able to, okay? But Delaware can't, Maryland can't, Mississippi can't, Alabama can't, Louisiana can't, okay? Missouri can't. So if you understand the constraints, you understand how to ferret through the real choices, not the false choices they put in front of you, okay? But it's only within that framework, it's only within that lens that you're able to see the world as it is, not as you'd like it to be, not as they're presenting it to be, but as it is, okay? So if I were to ask you, why don't we have free student lunches for children? What do you think the real answer is? Is it that you think people are holding on to their hard-earned tax dollars and so therefore? Or do you think it's because the federal government has a reason? By making sure that families are on the hook for paying for their kids' lunches, it creates yet again another pull on the dollar. See, the dollar itself, the dollar itself is worthless without the tax. And it's not necessarily the tax. It's worthless without some form of obligation tied to it. This is why the concept of the petrodollar and stuff like that has any validity whatsoever. The petrodollar in and of itself serves as a sort of de facto tax. It's not a tax. It's not going to a government, it's going to the producers of oil or whatever. But the petrodollar, by being only um, priced in US dollars, while not a big deal in the grand scheme of things, it puts an obligation of sorts that makes US dollars matter, where they didn't necessarily need to matter previously, okay? So, the more we dig into the rabbit holes, the more we open up doors, the more we open up the blinds and let sunlight in, the more we can understand the constraints that are put around us and the lies being told by the lobbyist groups. You know, something that really cracked me up, and I, I want to say this, I, if I've said this to you all uh, before, forgive me, but I think it's worth mentioning. You know, it, it's funny how people complain about unions and complain about workers having voices in their companies. 
because simultaneously these same industries have their own union and that is in the form of lobbyists and it's also in the form of congress and and all these different uh business uh what do you call it like the better business bureau and uh the uh, chamber of commerce and all these other groups that are there to serve big business and capital's needs okay these are de facto their unions that fight for them and they fight for them in the halls of congress they fight for them at the local level as well so when they talk about how unions depress wages or they hurt wages they do this or what you're really saying is one side of the coin you're literally only putting the pressure on workers once again there's no focus there's no energy over absolutely clipping the wings of business from predating on labor the only it's just like the same thing as the national debt you see this 29 trillion national debt, which by the way, amounts to the every single dollar in the economy that's not yet been returned as a tax, okay? Why don't you ever see the national asset clock? Why don't you ever see the ledger for the national assets? You only see the ledger for the national debt. Why is that? There's a way of presenting everything that can make you feel a certain type of way, that can make you fundamentally change how you see something and limit your possible options, limit what you think and what you know, okay? And unfortunately, we have been baked into that in this country with this duopoly setting, Republicans or Democrats. It's either or. It's always either or. Now, yes. There are laws on the books that make the first past the post duopoly kind of like codified into the national footprint, the law of the land. It would require some serious legal maneuvering and it would require some fundamental changes on the laws to really make more than two parties viable in this country. And I don't think the two parties are viable because I don't believe in the political process. All you have to do is go back to the Becks, if y'all remember Jared Beck and his wife, and they fought tooth and nail, Jenna Beck, I think it was, and they fought tooth and nail uh, down there in Florida against the DNC. They filed a suit against the DNC saying they were taking donations from poor people and uh, voters based on a false premise that they had any prayer of having a real legitimate chance of electing Bernie Sanders. And the Democratic Party successfully, successfully fought in court that they had the right to not run a primary at all, that they could hand select whoever they want to be their nominee because they're a private corporation. But to everybody else, it didn't feel right, didn't smell right, because we don't have an option. We don't have a third option for a party that can be sitting in the debates, that can be actually without somebody playing games, being left off the ballots, that don't have to chase around to find ways of getting on the ballot, okay? We don't have that. We have two parties that have absolute control over who gets on the debate stage, who's welcome, who's not. It doesn't have to be that way. But because of the structure of our country and the laws on our books, and who, interestingly, this is like the the wolf guarding the hen house, or fox guarding the hen house, 
you know, the two parties that would need to pass laws to open it up to rank choice voting, which would have to open it up for other things. Why in the world would they vote against their own self-interests? Why would they do that? You know, they wouldn't. So each time you have to understand all the false choices that are given to us are based on them literally intentionally limiting the view that we have for what our possible choices are. And as a result, they present you with two ready-made choices of which one is going to readily be rejectable and one is going to be slightly less disgusting. And then it's going to be, well, what do you want, Trump? And so you're going to go with that other thing every time. Even though those are the choices that were presented to you by people that have a decided interest in you only having those choices. Okay. So in any event, I am done for this day. There's a lot more to say, but I want to just go through these comments. Uh, very, very good to see everybody here. Appreciate so many of you all uh, jumping in. Nice uh, super chats. I'll get to them in a second. Um, scrolling through. Uh, Mr. Ty Kane say, hey, very, very good. Thank you so much. Steve raises a good point. The national government should be supporting small businesses, not forcing them into private bank loans. Exactly. And going through here, um, I mean, there's just so many good comments, folks. I hope the God you guys keep them coming. Uh, humorous, another $20 super chat. He says, keep going, my old friend. Don't worry about the followers that really don't want to listen to your truth. Eventually, they will all come back to you the minute austerity turns onto the streets and destroys their life. Boy, oh boy, isn't that something, man? I don't know if they'll come back to me, but I hope they wake up. Shane here, uh, the thing that non-MMT-minded people can't seem to understand either, if we make schooling for doctors, nurses, et cetera, then there is less of a need for them to make 500000 a year to just barely survive paying their loans. That's right. And if it's nationalized, let's talk about that. If it's nationalized, guess what else we got? Now the federal government can cover any kinds of issues of malpractice or whatever. I mean, sure, there's an incentive for doctors to not have malpractice and not screw up, but isn't firing them still a potential thing there or sanctioning them or whatever? I mean, there's a host of ways of dealing with it. It's not either or. Anyway, there is a lot of great comments in here. I really appreciate all of you showing up. Um, I will be on Political Misfits here in a little while. And tomorrow, um, obviously, we have uh, macaron and cheese coming out at 8 a.m. Uh, we'll have Harvey K. <laughs> I got to tell you, it's an interesting conversation. We're talking about the four freedoms, and we're looking at Franklin Delano Roosevelt. now. For socialists out there, black and brown people, Japanese and others, FDR is a mixed bag, isn't he? I mean, there's some things there that really, really are very uneasy to think about and talk about. Um, Harvey comes out. He recognizes up front that FDR is no saint. Then he goes on to explain the times and, and what he was up against and how it went down. I push back. I mean, there's some, uh, you know, socialist ideas that I have that I, 
you know, but I tried to give Harvey his um, space and I appreciated the fact that he was so informative of his work um, and his time. But then right after Macaron Cheese comes out tomorrow at 8 a.m., I will be with our guy Ty Canes and Steve Keen on their own channel, uh, which is the uh, Friends of Steve Keen show. It's nice. I, you know, this is my first time being asked to do something with an economist on their show. Um, I always have them on with me. Um, it's nice to feels like respect. And I appreciate that more than anybody could possibly know um, that there's a real nice show as much as I've had so many on and so forth. Frequently, a lot of the people that we have on don't even share the, the stuff we interview them on. We don't even get shares and a lot of them don't even acknowledge our existence after the show. So um, when somebody invites me on, I just want to make very, very clear how much I appreciate um, that offer and how excited I am uh, about being there. And that'll be tomorrow at noon, uh, Eastern Standard Time, Friends of Steve Keen. Look it up on YouTube. And I believe, I believe that Monday I'll be on Generational Change talking about cuts to Social Security 8 p.m. So it should be a rogue scholar Monday morning. Depends on how I feel. Anyway, with that, folks, I'm Steve Grumbine, and I am going to be telling you the normal that I'm out of here. But before I do that, please consider becoming a uh, you know, donor. Please like and subscribe to our channel. Uh, please share these videos. Folks, people don't see it. I'm not joking. Unless I'm willing to do a show that says, Jordan Cheriton owns Jimmy Dore. Jimmy Dore owns, you know, the majority Porter or so-and-so owns uh, Sam Sater, you know, whatever, some crackpot loser fucking live stream. Unless I do that, I don't get past the algorithms. If we're just doing smart people stuff and trying to walk through these things, it doesn't break past the algorithms. It's only when I get into the food fight, and I don't do that. But I know a lot of you guys go out there because I see 2,000 views on trash streams. 10,000, 15,000 views on trash streams of so-and-so owns so-and-so. And man, oh, man. Not going to do it. Not going to do, do dog tricks and jump around and spin and stuff and sniff my own junk so that you guys will come. If that's what it takes, it's not worth doing. So anyway, long story short, my name's Steve Grumbine. I am the Rogue Scholar, and I am. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support our efforts, please take a moment to subscribe and check out our other work on the Real Progress in Action YouTube channel and visit our sister organization's website at realprogressives.org. 